It's good to gather on this first Sunday of being back together for summer at 1030. One thing that you'll want to be aware of is, uh, as is normal with our summer schedule, uh, our kids, K through 5th, um, if it's not the last Sunday of the month in which we have family service, uh, after the uh, elder pastoral prayer and scripture reading, uh, you'll have a chance for those students. Pastor John will lead them over beginning next week into our kids' facility to, to continue on uh, through the series, uh, through the Old Testament that they've been working through. So mom and dad of K through fifth graders realize that they'll, you'll sign them in, they'll have check-ins out here as well, uh, or across the street if you prefer, uh, and you'll be able to uh, have them join us for worship, uh, musical worship, and then the scripture reading, and then they'll exit at that point, uh, pun intended, uh, for a portion of the sermon. They don't have to, but if they desire to continue on that series for the Old Testament, uh, they'll want to be able to be a part of that. I'm so grateful for Jonathan, a faithful brother and elder who so well handled 1 Corinthians chapter 10 last week as our introduction into the book of Exodus. And so today, as it is, uh, as we do, is custom with the first beginning of any book, uh, if you would stand for the reading of Exodus. That is not true. Uh, so I'm not going to make you do that. I appreciate it right back there. I like it. That would take us three hours to do, so I'm not going to make us do that, but uh, you're officially my favorite in here. Uh, this is an excellent task. Uh, but what we'll do is like the Gospel of John. We'll, we'll read whatever passage we're going to be expounding on that week. This book, though, is tremendous. Uh, I will try to do my best to, to just flip through. So you, you've noticed in your bulletin already the outline, the sermon outline. And what I've tried to do is give us this, this theme, this, this heart that I would, I would pray would, would reach into our minds. Exodus, this account of the faithful God in the midst of his forgetful people. All three of those components are incredible. So what we're going to do first is we're going to look A through Z, and, and, and you'll, I think you'll be most benefited by this by keeping your Bible open to Exodus. And I'm going to read several of these passages, and we'll just expound for a paragraph or so on each of these points, but keep your Bible open to Exodus and follow along as we work through the handout together, noting first the reality of the faithful God, the faithful God. And the implications, as Jonathan preached for us last week, that these things were recorded for our benefit, church, for our benefit. So uh, let's begin in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. I'm going to read for you as you look at this first component. We're going to notice the verbs of how Yahweh, the Lord, our God, He propels the plot through the Exodus. He's the hero. He's the mover of the story in the direction that it takes, the faithful God. So what do we see in first in A? God grew Israel. God grew Israel. And as you write that in, I'm going to read for you Genesis 12, 2, uh, before we look at Exodus 1, 7, because all of these things take place in the covenant promises of God. So if you've never read the Bible before and you're just coming, beginning in Exodus, you've missed a little key part of the story, or several keys, but we'll see through our series in Exodus so many threads back into Genesis. When we finish this book together, we will also have a better understanding of a reminder of the faithful God who keeps His promises. I want to read Genesis 12, 1 through 3, as a reminder to the covenant promise that God made to Abram. It says, Now the Lord said to, to Abram, remember Abram and Sarai barren, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and 
I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. If we were to click a hyperlink, click on that button, we could come to Exodus and see a real demonstration of what happens when Pharaoh, whose heart is hardened against God, who despises and mocks at Yahweh, that as though he could be greater, the God of the Hebrews could be greater than he, the king, the leader of the Egyptians. And we'll see what happens when he curses against Yahweh, the judgment that will befall Pharaoh. So it's in that context that we see Abram's seed, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and Joseph has been dead now, died at the age of 110. And this seed had grown into a mighty people in Egypt. And that's where we read in Exodus 1-7, it says, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. When we read that at the beginning of Exodus, we should remember this is the fulfillment of God's faithful promise. Even though they were in captivity, they grew. They were blessed as a mighty people because the covenant faithful God keeps His promises. Let's continue on into B. We see it down in chapter 1, verse 20, that God dealt with the midwives. And we notice through the book of Exodus, there's massive themes that come through of God moving on the plot, but also, as God is so kind to do, we, we get these hints of the pictures that nothing is too small for God to perceive. We see Pharaoh, and we see Moses, these massive figures of the story, and yet here in Littered In, we have the faithful, often forgotten midwives. They fear God, and God blesses them with families. Nothing too big, church, nothing too small to bring before the Lord our God. We see in 120 exactly that. So God dealt with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, He gave them families, echoed back in verse 17 as well. So God dealt with the midwives, nothing too big, nothing too small. Go to verse 24 of chapter 2. We see that God hears, He remembered, He saw, He knew. Notice the verbs, God propelling on the plot. Chapter 2, verse 24. We see in point C, God hears, God remembered, God saw, God knew. And we could actually begin back in verse 23. The people of Israel groaned because of the slavery and, and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And what happened? And God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. God is the one who responds to their cry. We see in this a fulfillment, a moving on of the plot, not only of Genesis 12, but of Genesis 3. The promise that God would send the snake crusher. This moves forward through this story that seems rather hopeless in the land of Egypt. Yet God is working because God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. Our call is Members, the body of Christ is to remind each other of this truth constantly. In the storms and even in the high times and times of blessing, God is faithful. We see His faithfulness to the people of Israel. We look at D, 
Chapter 3, verse 4 and verse 6, God called and God said, this propels the plot forward now at warp speed. In chapter 3, verse 4, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Down in verse 6, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And, and Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. There are so many different scenes that we'll note in which God gives that full statement, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. It's a, a reminder that Yahweh, even though Israel has never known the Lord in his personal name, he's the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Christianity is not some new separate religion different than Judaism, but rather is indeed the fulfillment, the full statement of this grand story. It's what we saw in what Jonathan preached last week that's anchored in these historic roots. Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. The one that we worship, Yahweh, the Lord our God, He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This anchors our feet in the confidence of God's faithfulness. Now, when we come into chapter 3, we'll look at some things as we come along, the question of who is this in the bush? Who is this angel of the Lord? Is he this Old Testament figure? Is he simply a, just an angel, a direct messenger? Is he a, the pre-incarnate Christ, some would argue? Is this something called a theophany, God appearing in the Old Testament? Who is this that we see several places in Scripture? Or is it someone different in different scenes? An insight that we get into the person of God. So, God called and God said. He called forth this unlikely leader, Moses, who is slow of tongue. Chapter 4, verse 10 gives us more insight into that. Now, I'm not a speech pathologist. I'm thankful for all the speech pathologists we have here in our church and our community. You all are awesome. So, you all can get back to me and figure out whatever speech impediment that Moses is dealing with that makes him hesitant to obey the Lord God. But the Lord, who is gracious and faithful, He meets him in his need with Aaron. God called and God said. Now look down in verse 10 of chapter 3. God called and God said and God sent. God sends Moses. But Moses is reluctant to face Pharaoh. He's hesitant to go, but what does God do in F? Chapter 4, verse 15, God was with Moses. God calls Moses, God equips Moses with Aaron beside him, God sends Moses, but God is also, as we work through Exodus, He is ever with Moses. He's with Moses. Then chapter 4, verse 15, we read, you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He was ever with Moses as indeed the comforting physical presence of his brother Aaron would have been with him. That's the faithfulness of our God. Now, I didn't put him as a reference, but chapter 3, verse 12, chapter 3, verse 15, helped to remind us, as God consistently reminds Moses, that Yahweh is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the Almighty One, the All-Powerful One. He is exactly the same God. He's not some second edition. He's not some different God that's coming in and taking over. He is the same Lord God. He is Yahweh, the Lord our God. So God sent, God was with Moses, and G, God hardened Pharaoh. God takes an active role here of hardening Pharaoh. 
And what we see in the hardening of Pharaoh is, is both, we'll see this when we get to the Ten Commandments, this combination of Pharaoh hardening his heart with the first five or so commandments, and then as a response, or in the first five plagues, I should say, and then we'll see the Lord hardening his heart with most of the last five plagues. What we see demonstrated is not only the fulfillment of Genesis 12 that the curses would come to those who would curse Israel and their abiding in the word and way of God, but also it's a living demonstration of Proverbs 21.1. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he wills. Pharaoh, who thinks he is high and mighty, will see this firsthand of his heart that is increasingly hard in pride against God. The Lord will steer it where he wills. And how will he will it? To bless Israel into a mighty people with great wealth going out into the wilderness from slavery. That's the greatness of Yahweh. We look at H. God promised to, to bring out. He promised to deliver. He promised to redeem. He promised to take. He promised to be with and to give all of these things to them. In chapter 6, verse 6 through 8. So we see God's care for His people and the kindness He gives them consistently the who He is and the why and often the how He's going to do something. That's the kindness of our God. He's giving them an assurity of what's going to take place. He is always working. So in the Exodus, and when we look at the first several chapters, we'll, our, so much of our attention will be zoomed in on the context and the difficulties of the bondage that they're in. But then when we see them eventually led through the Red Sea, we'll, we'll notice the same threads beginning to be picked up again. God never stops being with His people. He never ceases to be faithful. He never ceases to love them and to care for them, but He also never ceases to be faithful to His glory. This is good news for us. You know, the book of Esther and the book of Exodus are kind of two arms stretched out the furthest direction that you could get. What do I mean by that? Exodus has Yahweh on every page. Every chapter is detailed with either a word from God or an explicit working from God. He's always working. The book of Esther, on the other hand, never contains His name anywhere. And yet He is always working. In the still, quiet voice, or in the loud, explicit commands from His prophet, God is sovereign. And to the people of God, it warms our hearts and comforts our anxious minds that He is faithful, faithful, faithful. Look at I. Through each of these plagues, the Lord said and He sent and He did. And Exodus 7 through 11 kind of follows this same type of cycle. The Lord says and then He sends and then He does so. And this leads to the climactic 10th plague of Pharaoh agreeing with God. Finally, Pharaoh, we'll see, agrees with God in what he was supposed to do at the beginning, let his people go that they may go and worship him. Pharaoh, it seems, finally agrees. And then we get to Jay. The Lord will pass through. He will strike. He will judge. He will pass over. We have the Passover scene in chapter 12, verse 12 and 13. Let me read that for us. In chapter 12, 12 and 13, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt. 
I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And Jesus takes this and reinstitutes this for those in the new covenant hidden in Christ's blood. As believers, we'll partake of the Lord's Supper in just a little bit. What a powerful reminder of the grave reality of our sin and death we've been spared from that was willingly placed upon Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God who would take away our sin. Oh, He's good. So in all these things, we see in chapter 13, verse 11, K, that the Lord swore. The Lord swore. Maybe not how you would normally use that or think of that. So teenagers, don't write that down and think, jackpot, God did it. Chapter 13, verse 11, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as He swore to you and your fathers uh, and shall give it to you. There was promise not only of the leading out from Egypt, but a promise of the leading into the land that was to come. It was the faithfulness of God according to His Word. Now, you think about it in our context, in all of human history, the ever-shifting, shaking reality of life. And the different changes of politicians or people or feelings or emotions. And yet God's faithfulness to His Word brings us comfort. The Lord swore, and then down in chapter 13, verse 18, God led them. He led them to and through and from all of these things toward this promised land. We look at M in chapter 13, verse 22, a little further down. The Lord did not depart from them. In chapter 13, verse 22, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. He's faithful. We consider what they might have thought if they were reading our account. What might the Israelites have thought if they could read our account today? We read and we think, how incredible that the Spirit of God, the Lord, was with them by pillar of fire at night. How incredible would that viral video be? Cloud by day, it was such so clear. And yet if they were to read our accounts of how as believers in Christ, those who've been brought from death to life, regenerated, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And he gives us this good command to gather as members of the body and to sing His praises. How they would have marveled that God would be not simply in our midst, but within us. How good and faithful our God is. The Lord did not depart from them, and in the Lord drove the sea back. 1421. The Lord actively drove the sea back. And 1421 is fascinating. You got to look at 1421. 1421 and in. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back. What's interesting to me is that he gives us the details of how this miracle took place. How did it happen? By a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. He tells us how this miracle took place, but I imagine this is something like, you know when you go to the gas station and they have those dryers on the wall instead of the paper towels and it just pours out an incredible wind and power and dries your hand? It's like that times a billion. It's got to be that way to dry the land out, everything. Am I the only person that does that? Have you ever dried your hands and then 
got it too close and touched the spot, and then you were grossed out and needed to wash your hands again. Anybody been there? No. Just me. This is great. Wonderful. Let's continue on. So we see how the Lord led out the people. He, he drove back the sea and allowed them to pass. And, and then in verse 30, we see, oh, the Lord saved them. The Lord led them out, and then He collapsed the sea in to kill the Egyptian forces. It says very interestingly, into the midst of the sea. The Lord is in the midst of His people, and His enemies are crushed in the midst of the sea. 1525, we see P, the Lord tested them. This testing takes place. In 1525, we see this highlight of the song of Moses. And then the people, a very short time later, as we'll see, the Lord tests them. In 1425, or 1525, I should say. And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. And there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. We'll see this throughout Exodus in several different scenes of the Lord testing his people. It's important to remember that he tests them after he has saved them, which may be some application to us as believers We're not tested that we may earn our salvation. We receive our salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. And yet we are sanctified, we're tested, we're developed. Charles Spurgeon says on this text, I love this, he says, the wilderness was Israel's Oxford, it's Cambridge, it's Stephen F. Austin State University for his students. There's a variant there I picked up on. He says, they, there they went to the university and he taught and trained them and they took their degree before they ever entered into the promised land. That's the faithfulness of our God. The Lord tested them. And then we see in Q, the Lord gave these things to them. What did he give them? He gave them food and he gave them as a reminder, the Sabbath rest to observe. The giving God gives daily sustenance to his people. The Psalm 23 God, the shepherd of David shepherds Israel with their daily bread. When you think about our own lives, even in our own congregation, even with the college gone, there's in our room, in our gathering on any given morning through the week, God provides us with something like 10,000 meals a week. If you add them all up for each of us total, 10,000 meals the Lord provides for us. Now, you still have to go and get your own to bring it back to lunch on the grounds, but the Lord provides us sustenance. He provides this for Israel, and yet they continually, as we'll see, struggle to trust that God will provide yet again. But the Lord gave them, we see in 1615 and 1629, and then in R, we note in chapter 19, verse 20, that the Lord came down. The giving of the commandments takes place. Before Moses can come up to the mountain, what must happen? The Lord must go down, and He calls him up. We look at S. Summarizing Exodus 20 through 23, God spoke, He gives the law. And when we work through that that portion of text together, there will be a bit of drudgery in the sense of the law does what the law does. The law doesn't free us, but the law shows us the significance of our sin. The law shows us how cumbersome it is for a holy God to have relations with a sinful, forgetful people. But it also shows us a looking forward to that snake crusher that would come, the Christ, the Messiah, that would maintain the full demands of the law. God spoke. And T, chapter 23, verse 
31, we see that God sent an angel to guard and to bring, and God prepared and set the borders and gave the inhabitants into their land. Yahweh is the hero of the exodus and the entrance. In chapter 23, verse 20 through 31, he gives them a clarity of where they are going and a reminder to the promise that he had to get them there. We look at you, chapter 25, verse 8 through 31, 18. God promised to dwell in detail for his people how he would dwell in their midst. We have the tabernacle details. And when we read the tabernacle details, we say, well, this is incredibly detailed. Details everywhere. And if we were to continue reading our Bible straight through, we'd get to Revelation and we'd start to say, wait a minute, there are some details in here that sound very similar to the tabernacle. God promised to dwell in detail how to build His dwelling place. We see in this way, with the details, what I hope will happen as we read the details, you're going to be tempted, and we'll be tempted, and we'll approach this when we get there. There will be a temptation to gloss over in our minds. We may look at this and say, oh, and the lampstands, and then this, and we can become a little bit of drudgery, but listen to this. Today, many people give this idea that there are multiple ways to God. Multiple different paths. It's all just one big elephant and different religions are touching a different part of the elephant. Those people have never read Exodus. We see the details and the requirements to have fellowship with God. God is not somebody that changes His morality or the way that He will be worshipped. He is holy. He is Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The one true God. And what will happen when Israel attempts to worship in a different way? Well, we look to chapter 30, verse 32, verse 9 through 10. That's V. God saw their pagan idolatry. They take the gold they took from Egypt. They boil it down to the golden calf. And God threatened to consume them and remake them. To wipe them out. God will not be worshipped according to our own desires. God saw, God threatened to consume and and remake them. We look at W, the Lord relented. He sent a plague. He decided not to wipe them out. He allowed Moses to play a role of intercessor. And instead, he sent a plague. And we see that God ultimately is for his glory. Now, I I do want you to keep this marked, but I'm going to read from us Joshua 5, 13 through 14. This is a reminder of this. God is not a sports fan cheering for the Israelites blindly. This is so important for us to understand. And Exodus makes us see this. Because what can happen is we can read this and we can say, Israel, good guys. Egypt, bad guys. Let's go Israel. And Israel will think this from time to time. And when they do, they experience the consequences. So do the inevitable kings, the patriarchs as well. God is for His glory. His plan is... Through Israel, he'll bless Israel and he'll bless the nations. Through Israel and through this seed of Eve that will come, the Christ. But in Joshua 5, 13-14, when they finally get to the Passover, they're observing the first Passover in the land outside of Jericho. And they go and they ask the angel, listen to this, Joshua 5, 13-14, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, 
Are you for us or for our adversaries? What did he say in verse 14 back? No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and now I have come. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? The question is God for Israel, is God for Egypt? The answer is God is for his glory. And that is good. We'll see more details of this in just a second. We look down to X. The Lord passed before him. The Lord relented. He sent a plague. We see that God is clearly for his glory above all. And he uses a people. He uses Israel that he created into a nation. But the Lord passed before him in chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord again, he descends and he passed before Moses. And, and, and this time, we see that he reinstitutes the covenant. Even though the covenant was made, you remember the, the, this covenant with Moses, the law is given, and immediately the idolatry of the worship of the calf happened. And what does God do? He's so gracious and kind and merciful, he reinstitutes it. We see this in chapter 34, verse 10. Why? X and Y. The Lord passed before him, and God made a covenant with Moses and Israel. And if you're a note-taking person, uh, right now your hand is probably on fire, but write in there Exodus 19. You need to write in Exodus 19 beside Exodus 34, because Exodus 34 really almost directly mirrors the language from Exodus 19. This covenant that will bring blessing to Israel is reinstituted. Also, this particular covenant has consequences for Israel if they did not abide. X, Y, and Z, the A to Z's. Chapter 35, verse 30 to 34, we see that God's Spirit filled craftsmen to enable them to build the tabernacle. The details of the tabernacle sound overwhelming, but don't worry. God is with them, and God is also in these men. He sets them apart for a particular charge, a particular purpose to do exactly what He's asked them to do, to build and to craft the tabernacle. But we see first that God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. Okay, so everybody get loosened up. We're, we're, we're almost there. All right, we got the key part. If you miss the second part, you're just going to say Exodus is just all about God is faithful, which honestly is probably good enough to stop, but we're going to finish it out because I wrote a full outline for you. So let's keep going. Let's go back to Exodus. Go back to Exodus 3. Flip back in your Bibles. Exodus chapter 3. The faithful God in the midst of his forgetful people. There's so much more that we could have included in this portion, but I just wanted to mention a few highlights. The faithful God, how amazing God is, how amazing Yahweh is. He's revealed his name to his people in the midst of his forgetful people. We see in chapter 3 that Israel forgot God's name. As generations have passed from Joseph and Israel has grown into a nation, the people have forgotten God, and the Lord is very clear to make sure that they understand who He is and who exactly the God is that's going to lead them from captivity is. He's faithful. And what happens in this is this natural process of discipleship for Israel. They have a knowledge of God in Exodus. They have a history of knowledge of God in the Scriptures and their experience with God, so they gain a knowledge, K, they gain a knowledge of God from His Word. But these Israelites, as they're now in captivity, are, gaining, are going to gain an increasing experiential knowledge with God. This knowledge they're going to gain with God of who Yahweh is, the personal name of God. They find this, His name to be true and faithful. 
The knowledge of God leads to faith in God. We see that as they come through the land. They said they believe in Yahweh and His servant Moses. Their knowledge of God through scriptures and their direct experience with the Lord God leads to a building up of their faith. And their faith shows itself in many scenes through a refining of their character. Knowledge, faith, character. Their character is refined. They begin to resemble more Yahweh, the Lord their God, rather than the pagan nations. But sometimes it's the opposite, right? It's part of the tragedy we'll see in the book of Judges. Their character is refined. And as their character is refined and they come into new situations, what happens? Their actions resemble the Lord. And as their actions look more and more like the Lord, what happens? Their knowledge of God increases, their faith is fortified, their character is refined, and their actions are again developed more to be Yahweh's people. What a light to the world. Their knowledge is increased further, and their faith is built, and their character is refined, their actions model the Lord. And their knowledge is built, and their faith, and you see where we're going right here. Wax on. We look secondly in B. What do we see, though, about the forgetful people? In Exodus 6-14, through 14, that Moses forgot God's power and presence. Consistently, the Lord has to remind him of who he is. And Pharaoh himself forgets God's power after each plague. Now look over to chapter 5, verse 1-2, through 2, even though I mentioned chapter 6-12, through 6-14. through 14. I'm going to read chapter 5, 1-2, through 2, because this is a big plot point that we see echoed through these, those eight chapters. In chapter 5, verse 1 through 2, in this key first initial encounter, with, it says that after Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. In verse 2, what's Pharaoh's response? But Pharaoh said, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go, which is a really bold strategy for Pharaoh. Really bold. We'll see how that pays off as it goes through. But there's a forgetfulness. All the plagues show us a consistent revelation of who Yahweh is, and then a forgetfulness of who He is. And it just recycles like a laundry machine, just keeps going. So Moses often wrestles with trusting the, the Lord that he cannot see, even though he has the experience at the bush, he, he, he struggles to trust the Lord he cannot see when the person that he can see is the strongest man on the face of the earth, Pharaoh. Look at chapter 15, verse 24. We see that within as they exit Egypt and slavery, and they take the goods with them that the Lord allowed them to plunder, in chapter 15, verse 24, within three days of leaving the Red Sea, Israel is already grumbling three days, which at first spot, we look at that and say, come on, guys. And then we realize we're grumbling about their grumbling, and we realize, oh, well, they did pretty good. They made it three days. Three days they begin grumbling. And you think about it, three days is probably how much water they would have had. They would have been running out of water when they complained at this scene in chapter 15, verse 24. They said previously that they believe in Yahweh and they believe in His messenger, but Look at their stumbling. Three days to begin to grumble against Moses, who they said they believe is the messenger of Yahweh. Within three days of leaving the Red Sea, Israel already grumbled. What happens about 45 days later? We look at D. 
within 45-ish days of leaving the Red Sea, Israel longed for slavery and forgot that Moses and Aaron represented God. They go from grumbling about their water source to now directly longing to be back in chains. We won't read it, but I'd like for you to write down Romans chapter 6, verse 14 through 23. Romans chapter 6, verse 14 through 23. And Paul, writing to the church, references the similar idea of a people who have been led free from captivity to sin. The foolishness that it would be to long to try to place themselves back under sin's authority. It's foolishness. You don't actually desire it. It's it's, it's not only wrong, but it doesn't make sense for us. And yet, as Israel was often forgetful, we find forgetfulness still in our old DNA. But God is faithful, isn't He? He's faithful. We look at E in chapter 16, verse 13 through 20. The faithful God in the midst of His forgetful people. Israel forgot God's faithfulness to nourish them, and they What did they do in 1620? They hoarded food. They hoard the food. God says, don't take more. They take more. And the food, it says, it gets infested with worms, and then it stinks. I read an article this week that was encouraging people to begin eating worms and all these different things and bugs. The guy that wrote that might have loved it. But Israel had better options. It reflected their forgetfulness. Perhaps their faithlessness, but fortunately, God is faithful. That's the encouragement to us today as it was to Israel. We, looked at, we look at F in Exodus 32. Israel forgot God's glory. And what did they do? They made the idol and they worshipped it. As Jonathan preached last week, they refined the gold from Egypt into the choice idol. And what did God do? Look at chapter 32, verse 26 through 39. Exodus 32. You've got to read this to see it. This is stunning. Exodus 32, 26 through 29. Now remember, God could have wiped them out. We saw that a moment ago. He could have done so and made a new people in this way. He he was enraged by their idolatry, his righteous anger in chapter 32, verse 26. We see that the Lord instead, though, he does bring the reality that the wages of sin is what? The wages of sin is death. And as Adam and his inheritance, us, humanity, experiences death. But sometimes that death comes immediately. We see this with Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, and we see it here with a number of them. Look what he has the Levites do, these people that will be set apart as the priests. Look what he says. He doesn't kill them all, but some will die by the sword. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. Good gracious. Look what happens in verse 28. The sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, what did he say? 
Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. God ordains the priesthood of Israel, the Levites, and ordains them after they did what? Did they choose Israel's side? Did they choose Egypt's side? Or did they choose the Lord's side? They chose the glory of God, even though it led them to do an unimaginably hard thing and kill their own families of Israel. That's how God designed the priesthood to actually bless Israel. That's true justice, true impartiality. True believing that the way to truly bless the nations is to abide in the way and the word of God, even when it's costly. But as we know, Israel struggles with this through her history, pointing forward to the snake crusher, Jesus. We look at all of this and finally we know it in G. And yet, the merciful, faithful God loved Israel and dwelled in their midst. Look at chapter 40, the final chapter, as we conclude this summary. Chapter 40, verse 34, after all of this, the faithful God in the midst of His forgetful people. What does this good, loving, gracious, faithful God do? Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. We look down to verse 38, for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The Lord is faithful. And that's the beauty and scandal of the book of Exodus, that the faithful God will truly dwell in the midst of his forgetful people. Believer in Christ, how does that encourage you today? To know that you stand not by your faithfulness, but you stand by the faithfulness of Christ. And in Him, you're tested and you walk and you're sanctified and you minister the Word of God to others, reminding us always that God is faithful. Let's look at our next steps. Challenge number one today, or for this week. I want to encourage you, though it will take you about three hours, to read or listen to the entire book of Exodus. If you can do it in one sitting, that will be wonderful. You can follow along in your Bible, just work through it. Now, it takes about three hours to read it out loud, but you can listen to it quicker. You can put it on 1.25 speed, or you can read it in your head at a quicker pace, probably. If you don't know how to use an audio Bible, Bob Nelson is right down here. Bob, would you raise your hand for us? Right here. Bob is probably the most tech-savvy guy in our church. If you can't get a hold of Bob after the service, see a teenager. They will help you download version, and you can listen to the audio Bible for free. So a challenge to read it or listen to it in one sitting. And if you have family members that come here or that you can listen to it with or friends, do it together. Listen to it together. Just set some time and work through it together. Number two, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 reminded us that Israel's journey was written for our instruction. So my simple question is, we've done this overview. How has this particularly instructed you this morning? Your relationships, your walk with the Lord, and perhaps you're here and you've not trusted Christ. You've not been covered by the blood of the Lamb. Would this be the day for which you give your life to Christ, ascribing to live for His glory, resting in Jesus? 
Third, worship Jesus with your words and your attitude and your actions. And pursue others. Every one of us, God has in our life people that are far from the Lord, family members, friends, neighbors, co-workers, strangers, certainly. What will it look like if they become like Jethro? Is God great enough and powerful enough that it's possible that they would become like Jethro? We'll read about Jethro in Exodus 18. In Exodus 18, he's the father-in-law of Moses, a priest of the Midianites in Midian, in present-day Saudi Arabia, a good distance south of where this is taking place, and to the east. But he hears about the glory of Yahweh. He hears that the God of the Hebrews is above all the gods of the nations. And he comes and he makes a sacrifice of worship to him. He gives praises and worship to the Lord our God. What a difference. Who in your life might you pursue this week, this month, that by God's grace next month at June, the last Sunday when we observe the Lord's Supper together, they who may be living a Sunday fun day life today would instead come to know the Son of God and worship Him and long to gather with His people and partake of the Lord's Supper together. So may God give us courage and strength and prayer to pursue the lost at every cost. Finally, we ask that question, am I in the new covenant made by Christ's blood? And if not, confess your faith to Christ today. As you were able to grab, hopefully, those elements of the Lord's Supper, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we would encourage you to partake of this with us. If you've not yet professed faith in Christ, this is not for you. That's something that the text later on from what Jonathan preached for us last week so well highlights for us. That one ought not partake of the table of demons and of the Lord at the same time. It's not right. It's not natural that the church in Corinth is partaking of it in an unnatural way so that there's partialities that are taking place. Some are eating and they're excluding others from observing this Lord's Supper meal. And it may have resembled a little bit more like our lunch on the grounds we'll see in just a little bit than, than these. But the same idea is gathered at heart as we partake of the Lord's Supper in this time. So if you don't know Christ, would you not partake at this time? If you know Jesus Christ and Him crucified, your hope of glory, this is a gift that the Lord gives us that He reinstituted from the Passover meal. And so what I'd like for us to do is, is I'd like for you to, uh, to take with me as I read for us 1 Corinthians chapter 11, my fellow believer in Christ. This reminder for us that we who are many are one in Christ through His broken body and spilt blood for us. That He intercedes for us right now in heaven. His body has resurrected, glorified, and ascended. And He will come again one day soon. And we proclaim this, this Lord's Supper, as churches do thousands all over the world and have for centuries to proclaim His death until He comes again. We are hidden in Christ in Christ in us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul, he says it like this, in correcting the Corinthians' inappropriate taking of the Lord's Supper. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, He took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
As we walk through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, we see the cost of sin, the bloodiness for sinful people to have a relationship with a holy, righteous God. And as believers in Christ, we're hidden in Christ's blood. We've entered into this new covenant. As Jesus reinstitutes the Lord's Supper, Apollo recounts, in the same way, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you pray with me before we sing and worship to our great God and King? You're worthy of our praise, Lord. In every season, you are faithful. Lord, we confess our sin where we become forgetful. Or we have become forgetful of your glory. We've forgotten your kindness. We've forgotten your faithfulness to your word. Or we've neglected your word. We ask for forgiveness of our sins. Where we've sinned, Lord, help us to seek to make reconciliation. To be ambassadors of reconciliation. To long to come to see others who are far from you. To be joined to you through Christ. We love you and we thank you for the privilege that it is to know you. God, build our faith, refine our character, and send us in our actions to love others and to show others and to share with others the glory and the goodness that we have received by faith in Jesus alone. We do love you. Receive our song of offering in this time in response. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. You stand with me, church.